Talking History. This is News Talk. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. As one small step for man, one giant leap for man. <laughs> Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, the story of a Viking warrior who sailed to Byzantium to make his fortune and returned to become a legendary king before meeting his end at Stamford Bridge. We'll also be finding out about the history of watchmaking and what it tells us about time. And to end the show, we look at the ugly duchess and find out how a portrait challenges our views about beauty. You can email us your thoughts and views, talkinghistory at newstalk.com, and we'd love to hear from you. Last week, we brought you the story of the first woman artist in Europe to achieve commercial success, talked about the history of tea, and also previewed a new film on an 18th century classical composer whose career was held back because of his skin colour. And if you want to listen back to this or to any of our older shows, just go to the Newstalk app, powered by Go Loud, our website, newstalk.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. We begin tonight's show, though, with The Last Viking. Harl Sigurdsson burst into history as a teenaged youth in a Viking battle, from which he escaped with little more than his life and a thirst for vengeance. But from these humble origins, he became one of Norway's most legendary kings. And a new book tells the story of the life of King Harald Hardrada as he journeyed across the medieval world from the frozen wastelands of the north to the glittering towers of Byzantium and all the way to the Holy Land until his warrior death on the battlefield in England. The book is called The Last Viking, the true story of King Harald Hardrada. It's published in hardback by Osprey Publishing. The author is Don Holloway. And Don, you're very welcome to the show tonight. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. It's a fascinating story that could be turned into a multi-series on television or indeed uh, as, as, as a film because there is a very cinematic uh, quality to the story of, of Harald Sigurdsson or, or King Harald Hardrada as he was known. I take that as a compliment. I tried to write it, uh, although it's a non-fiction book, I tried to write it in a very novelistic style. Uh, I use my experience as a history writer going back uh, 25 years uh, to, you know, there's a lot of holes that need to be filled in. You can take all the original primary sources and there'll be gaps in the story. But I know enough about Harold and I know enough about the times that he was living in to be able to fill in those gaps for my readers a little bit. Well, let's begin with this major battle then when he was only 15 years old, a battle where his older brother, the king, was killed. It was a terrible defeat, according to an Icelandic poet. It took part in complete darkness because there was a total eclipse of the sun. You know, that's a very cinematic opening scene. So tell us exactly what happened. Well, uh, this was in the year uh, 1030. Uh, Harold had his, he was fighting alongside his older brother, Olaf, who was king at the time and was trying to retake the kingdom. He had been evicted a few years back and was trying to retake it. And as you say, uh, the battle took place under a near-total eclipse of the sun, which would have been uh, just a miraculous uh, or ominous event to uh, to the people who were fighting. I mean, a lot of them were Christians, and this, was, this would have been almost a thousand years exactly after the crucifixion 
when the sky supposedly went dark. So you can imagine the Christians on the battlefield were terrified. And uh, equally for the pagans there who worshipped uh, the old uh, Viking gods, Odin, uh, their supreme god, was one-eyed. He only had one eye. So you can imagine them looking up at the sky and seeing this black hole with a ring of fire around it, looking down at them like Odin. Uh, it would have been a momentous, uh, momentous occasion for them as well. And as you said, the Vikings under Olaf lost the battle. Harold, uh, who was only a teenager at the time, uh, was pretty critically wounded and barely got off the battlefield himself. And he was forced into exile at that point, had to leave the country and spent the next uh, couple of decades out of the country. And that's a remarkable story about what he got up to while he was out of the country, because this was a time when he carved out a remarkable career and a new life for him. So where did he end up, first of all? Well, he went to Russia, which uh, at that time was called uh, Kievan Rus. It was uh, not the same country that it is now. It was actually ruled more from Kiev in what is now Ukraine. So there's a little bit of a flip on history. Uh, he had kinfolk there, so he went to take shelter with them. Uh, the Grand Prince Yaroslav was his distant relative and employed him in the Imperial Guard. Uh, in those days, uh, Harold was still a teenager, but in those days, you didn't have to be a supreme fighting man uh, to rise to the top. You just had to be the kind of man that uh, supreme fighting men would follow. Harold had the royal blood, and uh, he was posted in command and quickly, pretty quickly rose to the top. I mean, he had the respect of the men who fought for him. So he became an imperial guardsman for the Russians. And he also fell in love with uh, the princess uh, Elizaveta, who was the daughter of of the ruler. And uh, but unfortunately, because he had no money, because he had no no wealth and land, uh, that was a marriage that wasn't going to be able to take place. Yeah, uh, it wouldn't have taken. Well, it, it could have conceivably. They were both very young. He was a teenager, uh, older teenager, and she may have been a teenager by this point. So they. Uh, he would have been basically planning ahead for this marriage. But as you said, uh, Grand Prince Yaroslav took a look at him and said, you know, you're perfectly fine and respectable, but you have no property, nothing really to offer my daughter. Uh, you're going to have to go prove yourself before you're worthy of uh, marrying her. Uh, and uh, Harold knew that he was never going to be amount to more than a, a guardsman uh, in Russian service. But at that time, the richest place in the world was uh, right down the Dnieper River uh, and across the Black Sea uh, in Constantinople, the capital of the Byzantine Empire. It was uh, the greatest city in the world at that time. So Harold off set off down that way to make his fortune. And so he went sailing to Byzantium and he joined this Viking unit that were these elite combat troops and uh, served as an imperial bodyguard. Tell me about this guard because it was here that, well, he was able to distinguish himself as a warrior and a leader. Yes, they were called the Varangian Guard. They were all an all-Viking unit. Uh, the Byzantine emperors, there was just constant intrigues and betrayals and assassinations. And uh, the Byzantine emperors wanted uh, a source of bodyguards who were completely separate from that, who had nothing to do. They had no Byzantine relatives, no kin to fight for. Uh, the Varangians were completely separate. They followed whoever paid them, and that was the emperor. So they had two different, uh, sort of two different classes of Varangians. They had the Varangians of the field, who were actually like a top-notch elite fighting unit in the Byzantine army. And then you had the Varangians of the city, who actually formed the imperial guard for the emperor. Uh, Harold signed up originally in the army unit, 
Uh, he was sort of there undercover because it was frowned on by the Byzantines to uh, take into military service uh, a prince of another country. Uh, so he sort of went in un- incognito and kept his identity hidden for the first few years. And he achieved some quite remarkable successes in battle. And this was part, you know, he went all the way to the Middle East and there was a whole series of wars there. And uh, and, and there he distinguished himself in battle. Yes, this was still a few decades before the First Crusade, but the Muslims and the Christians in the Mediterranean had been fighting back and forth for a couple hundred years already. Uh, when Harold got there, there was a major naval battle, and the sources do attribute him to being on a naval ship, so he doubtless took part in that battle. And this is one of the ones uh, where I had to extrapolate a little bit for this scene, uh, because although the sources say he was on a ship at this time, that's basically all they say. They don't go into a lot of detail, but I had the experience and the research to try to explain to a reader what that was like for a man fighting in a, in a medieval ship battle at that time, which was mostly about the Byzantines using what they called Greek fire, which was like medieval napalm and that they had a tank of that on their ships and basically went up to an enemy ship and fire raised it back and forth. And that's how naval battles were fought in that day. And then again, as you say, he uh, took part in a mission uh, actually to rebuild the Holy Church of the Sepulchre in uh, Jerusalem. It had been destroyed in the course one of the uh, Muslim caliphates had uh, destroyed the church. And in a brief uh, bout of peace between the sides, the Muslims let the Byzantines send a delegation down to rebuild the church. Harold took part of that uh, expedition as uh, in charge of the of the military escort. And I talk about what that would have been like, what that experience would have been like for a man from the far north to go visit, you know, the, the, the holy city of three religions. Eventually then he is recalled to Constantinople and there he is embroiled in a Game of Thrones, uh, an incredible uh, series of political manoeuvrings where you had the emperor dying, the emperor Zoe taking a liking to Harold, uh, wanting to put her nephew on the throne and make sure he was protected. But then people feeling that uh, she had murdered her previous husband who had been the previous emperor. Like there's all these manoeuvrings taking place at this time and Harold gets caught up in it. Yeah, that was one of the most fascinating sections for me when I was writing the book. I mean, I knew Harold's general story, but I did not know a whole lot about his uh, service in uh, in Byzantium when I went into it. And as you say, it was the the imperial court there was such a nest of backstabbing snakes that uh, I mean, you had to have your wits constantly about you, and uh, you you sort of have to read between the lines. It was funny. The Byzantine accounts talk about Harold being there in the court, but they're not. He's not as important to them because to the to the Byzantines, he's just a, a foreigner, you know, a foreign fighting man. So they do sort of back up the Viking accounts, but they don't really mention him, give him that much prominence. Now to listen to the Viking accounts, which you know maybe take with a grain of salt because the Vikings are bragging about what happened. Uh, Harold was very close to the Empress Zoe and sort of took her side in these intrigues. And as you say, her first husband, uh, wait, that was actually her second husband. She was accused of murdering her first husband, uh, the Emperor Romanos. The second husband, Michael IV, uh, he went into a precipitous slide in his health, and she was suspected of having poisoned him to put her nephew 
Michael V on the throne. And of course, Harold is trying to protect her through all this. And Michael V turned out to be the biggest snake of all of them. Uh, he was um, just a monster. And uh, the people rose up against him. Harold had to pick sides. He, uh, Michael basically banished the empress to an island. The, the people rose up to defend her. Uh, there was a monstrous uprising in the city. Uh, thousands of people were killed. Harold was in the middle of that. And again, I had to sort of extrapolate what that was like to be there. And, you know, in a very short period of time, Michael V was banished, uh, Emperor Zoe returns. And uh, is it true that Harold uh, took out the eyes of Michael V? As far as I can tell, it's true. Again, there's, uh, there's you know, you have different accounts. The Byzantine accounts uh, say that, yes, his eyes were put out and they don't name Harold doing it. But judging by the situation, the Imperial Guards were the one who took care of the thing, and Harold was in command of the Imperial Guard at the time. Uh, Harold would have had to have been the guy who did it. Now, the Viking accounts, again, which came down from Harold and the men who were with him, say, yes, he was the guy. Uh, They pinned Michael, the emperor, down on his back on the ground, and Harold took a dagger and flicked both of his eyeballs out. And then the emperor died, or the former emperor died soon after that. So uh, now he's kind of at the height of his his power and his reputation and all of that. He gets he gets wealth, he gets he gets status, and he gets enough money that he is able to return to Russia and marry the princess that he had his eye on all along. Yes, he goes back uh, to uh, Kiev and marries uh, Elizaveta. By this time, she's old enough to be married, and he's rich enough to be married. So nobody stands between them. Yaroslav gives the match his blessing and, uh, as you can imagine, a big drunken Viking party (laughs) described what that was like. But at this time, Harold already had his eyes on going back to Norway and winning back that kingdom that he had been kicked out of. So now he's a rich man. He's well married. He sets foot to go back to Norway. And how does he get the name Hardrada then? I think it means hard ruler. Uh, it does mean hard ruler, and this is this is like the third part of uh, the arc of Harold's story, uh, which I found pretty fascinating. He's uh, this time, as you say, at the peak of his powers. He is so rich that he goes back and basically buys half of Norway from uh, the, the the king ruling then, who is actually his brother Olaf's son, Magnus. So it's Harold's nephew. Rather than fight him for it, uh, fight each other for it, Mag- Magnus and Harold agree to just split the kingdom. Harold uses half of his wealth to buy the kingdom, his part of the kingdom. So this goes on for a little while. Magnus then soon dies, and Harold is the now the supreme power in the land, and and it's fascinating that he pretty much rapidly turned into a despot and a and a tyrant. And once uh, once all the leashes were off of him, uh he went to war with Denmark, which was supposed to be part of Norway at that time, went on and fought like a fifteen, sixteen year war with them that he never did finish, never was able to bring Denmark back into the fold. And when that failed, he sort of took out his frustrations on his own people. Uh, he was greedy, avaricious, and uh, just a tyrant. 
And today, people on this side of the water who follow football will will know the grand Stamford Bridge, uh, Chelsea football's home ground. And uh, today, many careers go there to die. And uh, for Harold, that was where he went to die in 1066 because uh, he ended up uh, getting caught up in those battles uh, and and, and those campaigns. And it all uh, came unstuck for him uh, at Stamford Bridge. Yes, uh, after his war against Denmark had failed, he was basically trying to reassert the old uh, North Sea Empire of uh, Knut the Great uh, in the few decades leading up to those years. Uh, he had, the North Sea Empire was England, Norway, and Denmark. Uh, after that fell apart, Harold was unable to get Denmark back. But when the opportunity arose to maybe conquer England and bring that part in, that would have been an even bigger prize. And he could not resist the temptation to go do it. He invaded uh, England in the fall of 1066, along with Tostig Godwinson, who was the banished brother of uh, King Harold Godwinson of England. They invaded up in the north. Uh, they defeated the uh, the armies of Mercia and York at the Battle of Fulford, and uh, thought they pretty well had the whole place wrapped up. Uh, they were it was they were going to resurrect the old Danelaw, the Danish part of of uh, England. They thought everything was good. They arranged to have a hostage exchange with the citizens of York to ensure everybody's good behavior. They were going to do that at Stamford Bridge. Uh, and since they thought that was going to be a peaceful encounter, Harold left a good part of his army, a third of his army, back at the ships uh, on the river, and they marched to Stamford Bridge. And when he got there, they found out that King Harold Godwinson had force-marched his men over 200 miles in a few days the whole length of England and arrived there to uh, to fight with Harold at Stamford Bridge. And it doesn't end well for him. Uh, how would you sum up uh, Harold's career? You know, it it had these moments of great heroism and courage. It had these moments of darkness and, and, and tyranny as well and harshness. He has been called the last Viking and, and indeed that's the title of your book that he kind of represents the end of the Viking age that, that he was very much, you know, a dramatic, colourful figure in, I suppose, the, the final era of, of the Vikings. Yes, he was really called the last Viking because most historians date the end of the Viking Age to the moment he was killed at Stamford Bridge. I mean, there were a couple more inconsequential Viking invasions of England after that that never amounted to anything. This was the last big throw of the Vikings. And I think uh, to judge Harold, I have to be careful with modern audiences about that. I'm a firm believer that you cannot judge uh, historical figures by modern standards. A lot of what Harold did... Uh, uh, even as I said, he looks like a tyrant by our standards, but by the standards of his day, it was nothing unusual. He didn't do anything that wouldn't have been expected uh, by people of his own time. I mean, hard-handed and you know, bloody, uh, greedy. That wouldn't have surprised anybody in those days. He was uh, a normal, normal man for his time. Well, it's a remarkable story. The book is called The Last Viking, The True Story of King Harald Hardrada, published in hardback by Osprey. The author, Don Holloway. And Don, thanks for coming on the show and telling the story so brilliantly tonight. Thanks again for having me. I appreciate it.
We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Welcome back to Talking History. Timepieces are one of humanity's most ingenious innovations. They regulate our daily lives and have sculpted the social and economic development of society in surprising and dramatic ways. And in a new book, watchmaker and historian Rebecca Struthers welcomes us into the hidden world of watchmaking, offering a personal history of watches that spans centuries and continents. The book is called Hands of Time, a watchmaker's history of time. It's published in hardback by Hodder and Stoughton. The author, Rebecca Struthers. And Rebecca, you're very welcome to the show tonight. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Can you tell us about your involvement with watchmaking? Because uh, as a child, I think you wanted to be a pathologist. I think I've always had a fascination with understanding how things work um, and whether that was uh, the body or animals and plants or, or little machines. Um, I was a terror for taking apart redundant technology around the house, like TVs, um, VCRs, that sort of thing. And um, I found watchmaking itself by accident while studying uh, the jewel and silversmith. And before that time, I hadn't realised that watchmaking was even a career, but it just happened to be taught at the same university. It was a kind of like an epiphany moment for me, really, to realise that I could have a job that was a lot of figuring out how things work and putting them back to the way they should be, but kind of combine my love of art, science, design, getting my hands dirty, which <laughs> has been one of my favourite things to do since I was a kid. And uh, yeah, never looked back. And if we go all the way back in time to the earliest discovered timepiece, is it 44,000 years? It's a huge amount of time anyway. Yes. I mean, the the oldest possible timepiece is around 44,000 years old. And I mean, obviously, it's only ever going to be possible because these things don't come with instruction manuals, unfortunately, at that age. But that's the the strongest uh, contender we have. And it's a bone carving that was found in the Lebombo Mountains and the border with South Africa. Um, and it's a series of notches, 29 notches, alternating with 30 spaces, which if you count between the two, equals out to a, a lunar calendar, a lunar month. And that kind of fits in with what we understand as, as this kind of development of our understanding of time and our relationship with time as starting with these, the longer duration events that we um, eventually kind of parcel down into smaller and smaller amounts of time over thousands of years. But um, the relationship with time itself is, yeah, dates back tens of thousands of years. And the book takes us through some of the the great watchmakers throughout history. And uh, there was uh, one man in France who, in the 18th century, you know, seemed to be this incredible watchmaker and uh, received all of these different commissions from King Louis XVI, including one for Marie Antoinette, which took so long to complete. Uh, She was executed a good many years before it was finished. Yes, and he, he actually passed away shortly before it was finished too. It was finished by his son, um, he was Abraham Louis Breguet, and he's still regarded as arguably the greatest watchmaker to have ever lived. So despite the fact he was working over 200 years ago, he has more inventions currently in production in watches now than any other watchmaker. So kind of the ancestors of his developments and his innovation are still in use today. And um, yeah, just absolutely fascinating character for me, both as a watchmaker in terms of like the things he was making were just incredible and still blow my mind to this day to think that he didn't have access to sort of electric lighting and motors and things that we do. And yet he was making these incredible works of mechanical art. But also, as you said, that he um, was working through this incredibly tumultuous time in European history, working through the French Revolution. 
And um, the fact that he was so brilliant and so highly regarded in his day that despite working for the French royalty and having to flee for a short amount of time during the revolution, he um, was actually invited back and um, the revolutionary regime fitted out his workshop again at the state's expense to start producing uh, watches watches for the military. Um, Napoleon, he made watches for Napoleon too, um, and reportedly Napoleon would dress up in disguise and visit his workshop. He was so fascinated by his work. And even more incredibly, he was making for English aristocracy as well. So he had watches going out to um, George III and Queen Charlotte, um, and he even made a watch for the Duke of Wellington. So he had watches both going out to uh, yeah the Duke of Wellington and Napoleon. So who knows, Breguet could have been the official timekeeper at Waterloo. <laughs> Very <Yeah>. good. And then <laughs> yeah. in the 20th century, you tell us the story of Hans Wilsdorf and uh, he was uh, involved in making, uh, creating and making Rolex watches, but changed the name of the company during the First World War. And was that because uh, he didn't want a German name to, to scare off customers? Yeah, there was so much um, anti-German sentiment in that run up to the First World War and the start of the First World War that it it wasn't um, it wasn't good for business to have such an obviously German name as Hans Wilsdorf above an office store in London, um, and you see this a lot in the advertising as well. Um, um, posts going out in newspapers saying just to confirm everything is made in the UK and we have no affiliation with kind of Germany or anything going on over there, and reminding people. But um, but yeah, so it was. Um, a combination, I think, of, of that really, and also his marketing genius, um, Hans Wolfsdorf, created the first mega brand, I suppose, one of the most identifiable brands of the, what was I going to say, of the 20th century, I suspect probably still in the 21st century, um, off the back of, yeah, this new um, idea for watchmaking he came up with, which all revolved around the commercialization of the wristwatch, which in the centuries previously had been seen as more of a women's item of jewellery and he responded to uh, to reports he was hearing from uh, soldiers coming back from the Boer War uh, and then later in the First World War that actually wearing a watch on your wrist was really useful um, and it, yeah until that point it hadn't really been a thing and by the end of the First World War um, most of the soldiers were coming back with wristwatches so um, yeah he, he, he gambled on the right technology in the future but it would be wristwatches and not pocket watches and he came up with this incredible brand identity that was, as I said, in part, I think, because of obviously moving away from his German roots, but also just a testament to his incredible marketing mind. What went wrong with watchmaking in England and in the UK? Because in the 17th century, it had an incredible array of, of, of people working on, on, on watches and clocks and incredible amount of expertise. And then just through failures to modernise and to keep up with things that were happening within about 200 years, it was very much well behind what was happening on the continent and in the United States. Yeah, um, I think part of the English industry was it was very much stuck in its old ways. England and particularly London was home to some of the greatest watchmakers in the world during the 17th and right the way up to um, the end of the 18th century. We regard it as the golden age of English watchmaking to this day. But um, it was towards the end of the 18th century that new methods of producing watches appear and um, the production numbers um, of watches increased significantly. But and this, well, I find this story really interesting. It's one of the only areas of the Industrial Revolution that England failed to keep up with continental competition. 
because you get these kind of manufacturers popping up around the Swiss French border, which ironically now is where the, the bulk of our industry is still situated, to um, reorganize production methods. So where English watchmakers would work is in small creative clusters. So you get a, wa- a watchmaker working with a case maker down the road, spring makers, screw makers, all in proximity, but all separate businesses. In Switzerland, you get this new method where they bring everyone into one production line. So the techniques are fairly similar, but you've got everyone under one roof, being managed by a workshop manager who um, buys in all the materials and stock. And, and um, yeah, it was hugely, hugely efficient. So an English watchmaking workshop was making a few thousand watches a year, so really busy. And in Switzerland, suddenly manufacturers could make tens of thousands of watches a year. And we failed to keep up. I think there's a real resistance to this change, this idea that the English watchmaker, English watchmaking was the jewel of our crown and that we'd continue to do really high-end stuff. And either there wouldn't be a demand for the cheap and cheerful stuff or that you know, people would always continue wanting, wanting English watches. Needless to say, that was a, a very poor business decision. You even get cases in the 19th century of, of English um, entrepreneurs trying to bring in Ultimately, it was the Americans who perfected mass production, bringing American uh, equipment and Swiss watchmaking production techniques, and they were resisted by our own clockmakers company and the British Horological Institute. So um, by the time we finally figured out that this, this new way of producing watches was the future, unfortunately, it was too late, and we'd already lost a huge amount of our industry. And to this day, um, English watchmakers still make a few watches, but they are very expensive and very tiny quantities and there aren't many of us left it's now a critically endangered skill in the UK. Given your love of watches and your expertise when it comes to watchmaking and this beautiful love letter that you've you've written in this book, does it upset you when you see how mobile phones and, and other technological devices seem to have replaced watches that people don't tend to wear a watch as certainly not as much as they used to because you you take your phone out of your pocket when you want to see what time it is. Yeah, I mean, I think I try not to learn, um, try not to make the mistakes of the past. For us, I think you can't resist technological change. It will happen. You've got to do your best to work with it. And um, I actually think it's proving to be quite an exciting time for the industry. So we've got a new generation of watch wearers who are appearing through the use of smartwatches. So it's where young people weren't wearing watches, but now got into smartwatches, and now through wearing smartwatches, they've realised that actually this is quite a cool thing for fashion and for just owning a lovely object. That that's got them thinking more about wristwatches more generally, including mechanical wristwatches. So we've kind of we've seen it almost come round again, a bit like the quartz crisis in the 1970s was thought to be the end of of mechanical watchmaking, that actually the two have ended up working together very well. And I think that will be the future for for smartwatches and smart technology too. As long as we make watches to be beautiful and pleasurable things to own and to wear, that demand for luxury and, and status objects will be there the same way as it has been in the 500 years that watches have been around us. And finally, tell us about Eleanor Smith, because uh, the New York Times was so convinced that she wouldn't be able to uh, break these records carrying using various timekeepers. But they wrote her obituary and had it all ready. But uh, she lived for another 80 years. 
Yes, yes, she was a pilot. So she um, used to perform these incredible aerial stunts flying under bridges and flying under the Brooklyn Bridge. And um, yeah, they didn't think she'd make it and prepared her obituary. And she sounds she sounds like an incredible character. I wish I could have met her. Um, yeah, you, I've written about so many of these amazing people in my book. And um, yeah, it's, it's wonderful reflecting on what they would have been like as people and sit down and have a cup of tea with them. Ellen is definitely on my list. And the book explores how, you know, when people were travelling, whether climbing Everest or going to the South Pole or whatever, time pieces and, and what were so important for that and uh, as part of, uh, uh, as a survival device as much as anything else. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we do take it for granted now with things like mobile phones. But um, I, I mean, I spoke to a uh, Molly Smith, who's a, an explorer and travelled to the South Pole at a similar time to um, Captain Scott recently and um, she told me about her watch her watch is a smart watch that has all of the mod cons involved in it but even then you're still relying on watches and time and um the, the kind of things that i found particularly interesting are how important time becomes in extreme circumstances because we lose our ability to keep track of time ourselves because we're, we're trying to survive so it's very easy to lose track of where you are with things and especially in an environment like the south pole where you're in 24-7 daylight, you've got no natural cue to let you know it's the end of the day and you're going through these extreme kind of physical endurance experiences so you're not really keeping track of time as well as you might do normally through the day. The watches become even more important, this kind of ability to connect in with this third party almost to, to give them an indication of the time of day is more important in those situations than it is at any other time. Okay, well, the book is called Hands of Time, A Watchmaker's History of Time. It's published in hardback by Hodder and Stoughton. The author, Rebecca Struthers, and we'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Well, welcome back to Talking History. We're now going to turn our attention to beauty and satire in the Renaissance because I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Emma Capron, Associate Creator of Renaissance Painting at the National Gallery in London and the creator of a wonderful new exhibition there called The Ugly Duchess. Emma, you're very welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me, Patrick. Glad to be here. Can we talk about this painting? I know there is a whole exhibition based around the artist, but the the, the, the ugly duchess itself, tell us uh, what it is, who the artist is, and also how did it get its name? So um, the painting is one of the most uh, recognizable faces, I'd say, in the National Gallery's collection. It depicts this very, very unattractive old elderly woman who's wearing a very provocative outfit with a dress uh, propped up, uh, tightly laced, low neckline, and an extravagantly large horned headdress. Uh, really trying to catch our attention. And uh, it's a painting that was created by um, an artist uh, active in Antwerp in the early 16th century named Quentin Massais, uh, and who was really a leading figure in Antwerp uh, at this day. And the painting was famous in its own day and throughout the 16th, 17th century and so on, kept on exerting huge influence and on uh, cartoonists, uh, printmakers. It was copied and reproduced endlessly. And it gained its nickname, the Ugly Duchess, because sometime in the 17th or 18th century, when the painting is in France, the painting is actually thought to be a portrait uh, whose sitter would be an infamous duchess, uh, German duchess, 
from uh, the medieval period, the Duchess of uh, Tyrol and Carinthia, Margaret Maltash, a woman who was essentially uh, reviled as the ugliest woman in history because she had, uh, had the audacity of... Um, divorcing her husband, claiming uh, political and financial independence, uh, and as such was uh, derided by her enemies as extremely ugly, her moral corruption somehow being reflected in her appearance. So and this kind of moniker is uh, later um, entrenched when John Tenniel, during the Victorian period, the cartoonist and illustrator, he uses uh, our painting as the basis for the depiction of the character of the Duchess in Lewis Carroll's uh, Alice uh, Adventure in Wonderland. So that's how it's, it's a long kind of journey that uh, entrenches the, the nickname and also uh, somewhat fixes the, the, the features of this woman in uh, British imagination. Yeah, so it keeps getting kind of a, a reinvention every century yes. or so and finds yes. new audiences. And, and I think maybe the way uh, John Tenniel was so influenced by it for those I- I- illustrations for Alice in Wonderland, which again was so hugely influential in shaping the fantasy world and mm-hmm. uh, uh, the world of popular fiction, that it gave it a whole new lease of life as well. Absolutely. I mean, in many ways, the afterlife of uh, this image is, you know, is as fascinating as its uh, Renaissance context. And it is, in fact, what uh, has uh, been the subject of most studies on this work up up to now. And that's why the exhibition wanted to kind of return to the Renaissance uh, origins of this image rather than focus on its afterlife. But the Ugly Duchess was a, a one of the stars of the Alice in Wonderland exhibition at the V&A uh, one year ago. And although Miss Ice was the actual uh, artist involved in painting it, uh, new research has shown that actually, and new discoveries have shown that actually he was influenced by uh, something that Leonardo da Vinci had done. Yes, absolutely. So this is not entirely new research. We know this from, it's been picked up since the early 20th century, but yes, there is a drawing in uh, Windsor Castle after Leonardo da Vinci, probably uh, made by uh, his uh, pupil and heir, Francesco Melzi, that uh, shows uh, the exact same face. Uh, and it looks like um, Massais actually took inspiration from one of Leonardo's hugely popular uh, drawings of grotesque faces, which he produced mostly um, when he was in Milan in the mid-1480s uh, uh, to uh, the early 1490s. What's fascinating is that as uh, in his earliest documented work, Massais is already citing grotesque drawings by Leonardo da Vinci. We do not know how he got access to them, uh, but he did, and he included them in many of his works throughout his career. Um, And what's interesting to think about and ponder about is how to get to Antwerp. There's no established trade in in drawings at this point uh, between Italy and the Netherlands, so maybe a wandering artist in, in Milan would have gotten access to them, perhaps made copies, and, and brought them up to Antwerp. But Massais is a key uh, figure in their introduction in Antwerp. And they also pop up in the work of other northern artists, such as Jos van Cleve, Hieronymus Bosch, Albrecht Dürer. It's a fascinating thing to think about that what actually was the most famous aspect of Leonardo's work in Europe during his own lifetime was these grotesque heads.
So what what do we know about the woman then who's the subject of the painting or how much can we deduce from things in the painting? For example, I read some interpretations which suggested that she was a sex worker because she was holding a flower and that was perhaps a, a symbol in, in Renaissance art, that there are all these different kind of theories and ideas based on evidence in the painting. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, her, you know, she's... she's by definition, uh, uh, cast as both a comic and slightly evil creature in in this painting. Um, evil because of her her attire by the early 16th century. These types of horned headdress, which were actually deeply fashioned, it's the form of headgear that was worn by aristocratic women at the beginning of the 15th century. Um, so it's a kind of cruel hint at the woman's age. She's, dre- she's dressed like she was a sh- when she was young, essentially. But this type of headdress were both completely ridiculed and also the preserve of, of bad women. Uh, uh, they had become a ubiquitous symbol of female vanity, uh, sartorial extravagance, and so on. So if you see this type of headdress in 16th century prints, the woman is bad. So it was a kind of easy signifier of of evil. And by the same token, a woman who would uh, brazenly expose her breasts uh, in this fashion um, would have been indeed uh, extremely lewd and provocative. And, you know, perhaps a sex worker, I don't I wouldn't. I don't know if I would go that far, but certainly, uh, Masai's and the humanist circle with whom he belonged were very uh, familiar with um, Roman satire and people like Lucian or Horace uh, often made fun of the figure of the old uh, prostitute, the old sex worker. So that could be a reference to that, but I, w- I don't think we can draw uh, absolutely solid uh, conclusions. And I should say that. This is a parody of a portrait. Masai is poking fun at a genre which by this date was extremely kind of codified and dignified, but it's not, it doesn't depict a real woman or uh, in the case of her pendant, uh, which depicts an old man, a real man. I think we're in the world of the fanciful and the playful. He's playing with the convention of, of portraiture, but not depicting uh, real people. And given that he is playing with these conventions, uh, that, that it is a parody of, of a particular portrait, do you think that there is an element that, I know there's a controversy or a debate going on at the moment that you are engaged with, a fascinating one about whether it mightn't even have been intended to be a woman at all. It might be a man in, in, in female dress or it could be a cross-dresser. Yes. Well, in this case, I think it has, um, this argument has more to do with um, the uh, world of carnival and uh, kind of vernacular folkloric uh, theatre happening at the time. So this figure of um, the old uh, woman with the withered breast and uh, the low neckline and this horned headdress pops up in uh, a series of other prints and uh, manuscript miniatures showing um, a lewd dance performed uh, during uh, the time of carnival. And at this type and at this time, um, the, 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 the woman uh, in question was performed by a man. So it's more the world of, you know, pantomime in that sense than I don't think Masai is really trying to... to, to uh, depict anyone that would be across gender, but there was this this tradition, and it could be that, that might explain somehow the rather masculine features and broad shoulder of the character. But again, 
we are in the world of, of imagination and, and festival. And what insights do you think, given that the title of the exhibition is about beauty and satire, what insights do you think we, we learn and what insights do we, do we get about uh, the way beauty is perceived and uh, what Maasai's was perhaps satirising? Well, it's, it makes us, um, I think, reflect on uh, the currency place then and perhaps now still on uh, women's youth and, uh, and, and, you know, beauty and what is beauty in terms of the harmony of features and so on. I mean, the, uh, and also women's propriety. Uh, the reason she's ugly is not only because she's old, but also because she behaves in a way considered unbefitting of her age and her sex. So I think, you know, by, by showing the opposite, um, uh, one can reflect on the, the canon somehow. Um, the other point is uh, the beauty in the title of the exhibition is that it's actually a very, very beautiful painting in the sense of uh, the refinement of uh, its execution. It's uh, something that the recent conservation treatment that we performed in preparation for the exhibition really, really revealed. Um, the uh, facture of this painting is absolutely exquisite, which I think adds to the joke of um, showing, uh, you know, the tension between the refinement of the painting and the obscenity of its subject uh, being uh, at the core of the, the humor at play here. Um, but um, to go back on beauty on its um, stricter sense, there is something uh, interesting also, um, I think, that the exhibition tries to tease out in seeing, um, you know, Umberto Eco in, that used to say that uh, beauty in many ways is, is boring in the sense that it always is confined to strict norms such as symmetry, youth, and so on. Um, whereas the ugly is... Uh, unpredictable, uh, mad, wild, free, and the shapes it can take are infinite. Uh, and so there is, for artists, um, in this kind of license, in this uh, being liberated from the bounds of the quorum, there is something incredibly playful and inventive, and it uh, gives them uh, a space for experimentation that beauty doesn't allow. So this is what we're trying to explore with the, the world of satire as well in the Renaissance, is the space it gives artists. How do audiences respond and how do people attending respond to the, the portrait? Uh, you know, are some horrified by it? Are some intrigued by it? Do some admire it? Do you get a whole range of reactions to it? Yes, absolutely. And um, it's, it's really quite wonderful sometimes to just be in the exhibition and, and, uh, and observe uh, people's reaction. There's always uh, a few laughters and smiles. People do, do you know, laugh often openly at her. But there's also a lot of closed, considered looking, uh, which I'm really happy um, uh, is taking place because it is, you know, again, it's, some, it's an object that's so carefully crafted, this painting. Um, and it's it's a bit of a Rorschach test that 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 work of art. You know, it's uh, the people who are completely repulsed by it, uh, people who cannot look away uh, and or, or cannot get, get enough. I I am obviously biased, but I absolutely love it. And I think there is something slightly defiant in uh, this figure who is. Uh, trampling canons of beauties and, and rules of decency and so on. I find there's a kind of cathartic joy in beholding this image. But, um, yeah, some people are deeply disturbed in, and find it just cool. So it is, you know, there's a range of reactions that I think 
speak to the power of this image in a way is that it makes us it makes us react. It doesn't leave anyone cold. And I know a few images that do that. So the exhibition is running in London at the National Gallery until the 11th of June. So uh, our listeners will have to move quickly if they want to see it. But admission is free and they book their tickets online in advance. There are other works as well. I think some others by Maasai's that people will get to see as well. Yes, uh, you will be able to see, well, the pendant of the Ugly Duchess, which I've already mentioned, uh, an old man, which really uh, is a fantastic reunion that I really uh, recommend. And um, we have another old woman, Van Massais, which is also quite uh, haunting in all her flaws. So I, I very much recommend coming. Did you have a lot of fun putting it together? I did. I did. It was, although sometimes it felt a bit like explaining a joke, you know, you, you, you lose the humor in the process. But ultimately, no, it is quite exhilarating uh, as a subject. And uh, I'm, I'm really delighted to be able to share it with our public today. Well, I'm over in London at the beginning of June, so I'm going to make it a priority to try and go and see it in the National Gallery there. Dr. Emma Capron, Associate Creator of Renaissance Painting at the National Gallery in London and the creator of this. It sounds absolutely brilliant and I'm looking forward to seeing it myself. The Ugly Duchess Beauty and Satire in the Renaissance. Well, uh, Emma, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Well, that does bring us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to my producer, Marisa Sullivan, and to Peter Malloy on sound. We've got more debate and discussion next week, so hope you can join us then. We've been Talking History. Good night.